There we go. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for that. And, you know, it's one thing as we've talking uh, in last week, and we're going to talk for the next several weeks here about walking with God in the dark. This is part two of a message, and actually there's going to be a part three because there's three points, and I'm going to um, break it up into three messages because I think it really forms uh, um, the, the whole context for understanding how it is that we walk with God in the dark. And uh, Sandy's story and Joe's story is a story that, you know, it doesn't just last a night sometimes. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's a moment, a season, and sometimes it's a very, very long time. And um, we don't know how it ends. Sometimes we don't know how things get solved. But we do know this. We do have a hope and a belief that God is the one, God is the only one that we know um, that makes sense of suffering, that makes sense of darkness, that uses darkness in our lives. And um, as much as we want to flee it, God is want, wants to use it. And so that's the message this morning as it was last week. What do we do when darkness strikes? And when we talked about it last week, I mentioned several things um, that it possibly could be. It could be many things in your life. It could be health. It could be the loss of a job. It could even be a marriage that is struggling right now. It could even be a child out of control or some attention getting way is trying to get your attention and it's frustrating. Or you pray for something and it doesn't really happen. Or it could be, in my case, a heart attack that wakes me up to what God might be doing new in my life. Um, every single one of us, I know this to be true, will go through a season of darkness. And really, it could be a lot of things. It could be confusion. It really could be hardship. It could be a darkness that, as I mentioned, scares us. Darkness is anything that really scares us, that we tremble from. Um, but we don't have to. We know we don't have to. We can learn from it. And this series that we're going through, we're taking a look at Exodus chapter 13 all the way to Exodus chapter 20, where Moses has led the people out of bondage, out of slavery, and now they're moving toward a better destination. We know that. They're headed to a better destination. Little did they know it would take 40 years. Little did they know that one of the first stops along the way would be a mountain, Mount Sinai. That God would speak to them, but he would speak in the darkness. See, God speaks in the darkness, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. The cloud comes down. It's shrouded in darkness. It's enveloped in darkness. And yet that's where the voice of God comes from. And that's what we see in our Exodus passage. Um, we know that... Um, in Exodus chapter 13, as we began our study, that, that first God would lead by the pillar of the cloud. And the cloud would form, and the people would follow, and it would be a, a dark shadow that would follow them, and they would stand under the shadow, which would prevent them from being overheated during the day. The pillar of fire at night, which would also keep them warm. But it was the presence of God. I mean, that's what it was. And as we as we learn in this story, there were several things that would have to happen that would prepare them for hearing God's voice. And then in chapter 18 and 19, when we come to chapter 19, it says that um, a thick cloud in verse 20, a thick cloud upon the mountain, a very loud trumpet, and all the people who were there trembled, it says. 
17, excuse me, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, with a fire. And its smoke ascended like a smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and answered with, and God spoke with a thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. So God's coming down, Moses is going up, and the people stood around. And God spoke. And then reading a little bit further into chapter 20, we know that they were frightened. They said, you speak on, you speak on our behalf. You speak to God. We are too afraid to be in the presence of God. I mean, from that whole scene, the people were standing at a distance. And it says the people stood at a distance while Moses, it says in verse 21, it says clearly, approached the thick cloud, Arafel. Actually, the Hebrew word for for cloud changes from just simply a cloud to now arafel, which means divine presence, darkness, a deep, thick darkness comes over the mountain. God's divine presence then comes. And we learned several things from this passage. And last week, you'll have to hear the message, God leads us into darkness. God is not out of control. He hasn't abandoned us. And we see over and over again God taking the lead. In fact, John of the Cross writes The Dark Night of the Soul, which is a remarkable study of what it's like to be in this experience, this divine encounter with God. It's not so much about the darkness of a situation, but it's more about this consecration that happens that prepares us. God's leading us into the darkness. And the very first thing that John of the Cross says is it's a time of purgation, purging us of things we're holding on to that are keeping us from a divine encounter with God. And what happens in the purging process is we come into a beautiful, remarkable, fresh encounter with God. And that's what... Um, that's what John of the Cross is all about. A joyful, glorious encounter with the Almighty. God puts out the lights to keep us safe from entering into the presence of God until we are prepared. And he uses that. And so that was week one. Today I want to look at week two. God speaks in the darkness or he gets our attention in the darkness. And then Bill's going to join us next week and talk about a community that works through darkness together, how community functions and works. And then I'm going to come back the final week and look at God matures us in the darkness to complete our series. But today, speaking, how does God speak? He speaks from the mountains surrounded in darkness. We read several passages of God speaking, then God spoke, then God called Moses up to speak to him. And God speaks clearly in the darkness. God wants to get our attention. That's why he brings it into our lives. There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 58. After Isaiah in chapter 6 meets with God and has this vision of God, comes into the throne room and meets him. In chapter 58, Isaiah reflects on that with the words that God spoke to him. You will call and I will answer. 
God says. You will cry for help, God says. Here I am. Here I am in your cry. The Lord will guide you continually. That's the confidence that we have. And then when we come into this presence, he begins to speak. But we're not even aware that he's there. That's where we begin. In fact, I found a fantastic section of one of the scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia. And this one is in book five. It's the horse and his boy. And it's the story of the golden age of Narnia. There's only six books in the series. And this is book five. And in this particular book, there is a, uh, there's a war that's about to begin. And young Shasta, a young boy, discovers and trips across this impending attack and rushes to tell the king, to prepare the king, that there is a battle coming. And so they're now headed to the castle, and uh, they're on their way, and Shasta's on an unfamiliar horse, and he gets separated from everybody else and gets lost. And he feels this sense of panic. He says this, I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Isn't that true? Don't we say that? We're right in the middle of it, and we're looking around going, well, that's not happening to anybody else that I know. And poor Shasta feels this, and then being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt very sorry for himself. I love the way Lewis writes. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark, and he could see nothing, and the thing or a person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. He could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. The story goes on. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imaginable. Anyway... He could felt the hot breath of the sigh on his chilly left hand. Who are you, he said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited a long time to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Once more, he felt the breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. And so he begins to tell him all about how these lions were chasing after him and and pushed him around and all these encounters with lions throughout the whole story. And then Aslan, of course, the great lion, says, it was I. I was the one all along in your story, pushing you along, protecting you. And then it begins to fade, the black to gray and then gray to white, And it must have happened over a period of time. And all of a sudden, he knew the night was over at last. He saw Aslan. He saw the lion. 
And he began to understand what God, what Aslan had been taking him through. Aslan representing, of course, the king of Narnia, the great majestic one, Jesus himself. And Jesus is with him. But often, I think, the story reminds us that our problem is that we're not seen because we are thrashing around in the dark and we aren't still enough. I told you the story last week about my big bear experience in a pitch black cabin in the middle of the night and I woke up and knew that I was in pitch black and stood up and got out of bed and couldn't find the door and I thrashed around and and only found a window and looked outside and couldn't see anything out the window and um, and finally found the door and I panicked and that fear of being in pitch black you know you've ever had that experience of just being in total pitch black it's actually a phobia Nyctophobia or scotophobia. Scotos means darkness in Greek. So scotophobia or nyctophobia is the sphere of darkness. And we just want to turn on the lights. We just have this sense, just get the lights on whatever it takes. In fact, in a couple weeks, I'm going to show you a passage in Isaiah chapter 50 about not turning on the lights and why God doesn't recommend us turning on the lights until it's time and so I wanted to turn on the lights. I was telling a, a group of uh, swimmers at Saturday morning at swim time about this experience. And, and one smart guy says, well, why didn't you just go back to sleep? And I thought about it. I said, well, why didn't I do that? It would have saved me a lot of grief of thrashing around in the dark if I just gone back to sleep and not worried about it. And yet what I am learning about myself is I got up and I was thrashing around And I wasn't listening, and I wasn't staying calm. You know, one of the things that I have learned in this last season after suffering a heart attack is how common it is for people that have survived a heart attack to go through anxiety and depression. No idea. Never put those two ideas together. That for some reason, that anxiety seems to be higher with people that come out of the experience of a heart attack. And I didn't know that, and I went to a doctor, a couple doctors actually, kept saying, what is going on with me? How can I not get this under control? Why do I feel this way? And and one of the things that was recommended was cardio rehab, and so I attended cardio rehab after six weeks, and and, uh, I was looking forward to it, but I thought actually since I was probably 10 to 20 years younger than most of my fellow cardio rehabbers, um, I thought, well, I'm going to pass, and they're going to kick me out of this program. And sure enough, they left me in, and I've been in ever since on a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 7 in the morning. I show up, and what I have discovered is how much I need that. I need the social support. I need to be with others, and I've met, um, and we've told our stories, and we ride along, and, and, and I'm doing rehab. I'm, we're on bikes and a elliptical, and then we're over on the weights, and we're lifting weights, and I'm on this whole program, and I'm ch- I've got a, a, a heart monitor on me, they, and they're watching a screen. And, and so it's been very helpful for me in a controlled environment to increase my physical endurance, but the social aspect of it. And then afterwards, after an hour, we have a little lecture, and we get together and talk about health and, and cardiac symptoms and and prevention and all the rest of it. And uh, remember I told you one of the preventions is to work out before your heart attack. It's very, very helpful. So it's just a little thing that I learned the day before. Just make sure you work out. 
So, but this particular lecture was on stress. And I, and I looked up at Jose, who was doing the lecture, and he has a master's degree in physical education and weight training. He's been helping me and encouraging me. And, and uh, uh, this, this story has a point. And he turned down the lights, and he said, let's put our hands in our thighs. And so we got, first he said, put your right hand, your left hand on your stomach and your right hand on your chest, and begin to breathe. And he was teaching us how to breathe. And he wanted us to learn that in good breathing, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. And you, 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 want, your, you, you want your stomach to rise, not your chest. And a couple funny guys in the back said, yeah, my stomach's always out. You know, so we had that laugh. And then we went back to the exercise. And then put your hands on your thigh. Turn down the lights in three minutes. We just sat there and we just did a breathing exercise. And we were just totally calm. And it was beautiful. And everybody just got really quiet. And I just felt like, and he says, now, this is what you need to be doing every day, five minutes. Turn down the lights. Be aware that you're okay. See, there's a lot of spiritual parallel to that, isn't there? You know, on the first day that I actually showed up, Jose took me around and, and, uh, took me through the weights and showed me everything and gave me the orientation. And um, I told him about my anxiety, told him about my stress and some things I was going through. And he recommended a little book. So I went out immediately and bought it and read it that day. Why not, right? Um, it was called The Peaceful Warrior. It was about Dan McMillan. He was a very, a very successful gymnast that went to UC Berkeley. And uh, uh, one night he couldn't sleep and he went to an all-night gas station and met a very interesting man working at this gas station who he called Socrates because of all the questions he was asking him. And he befriended this man that worked at the gas station, and night after night he would show up, and he learned the way of a warrior, was to slow down and find oneself. Now, it was very Eastern in his thinking, but there were a lot of really good lessons about reducing stress, hearing what's going on and listening. And see, if we're not ready, we're not going to hear anything. We're not going to even hear the voice of God. I mean, I, as I read that, I realized this is what I need to learn how to do. This was a message for me. Stress has really caused tremendous havoc in my own body. And I began studying it and researching it in terms of what, how it even impacts the, the billions of B and T cells in your body that run through your body, killing infection and diseases that are worn down by stress and all sorts of stuff. Theodore Rothke, an American poet, wrote in a poem entitled A Dark Time. And the poem begins with this. In a dark time, the eye begins to see. See, this is what Moses learns. He begins to learn. He begins to see God in the dark. And he doesn't see him in a normal way. It's an abnormal way. In darkness, you sense him. You sense his leading. You sense his voice. There's all sorts of ways that God gets around actually showing up in a physical way. No one has actually seen God. Even in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the throne room of God and sees God, he's fully covered by angels. If you notice in the text, the angels themselves 
have their eyes covered. The angels of God that are in the presence of God have their eyes covered because of the holiness of God. And that's why Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so God shows up and shows us himself in unique ways. Jacques Lucerian learned this, a young young boy about eight years old in France. He became an author and a political activist. But at about nine years of age, he had an accident and lost his eyesight. In fact, it could have actually been prevented, but his family was so poor, it wasn't. And he says, after his blindness, this is what he says in his book entitled, Against the Pollution of the Eye. Not E-Y-E, but capital I, in quotes. The pollution of I. It's, it means both. He says, the problem with seeing the regular way is that sight naturally prefers outer experiences. I know this is deep and theological and philosophical, but think about it. Let darkness shut out the superficial sources of light in your life. I think that's what he's saying. All sorts of superficial voices. He said, this is a superficial way of seeing, seeing with the eyes. Seeing has made me blind by giving me cheap confidence that one quick glance at things can tell me what they are. They really can't. He says, I lost my sight, yet the light was still there. Even in a profound way. It reminds me of the story of Jonah. And I want to take you to Jonah. It's in the Minor Prophets. It's only four chapters. And I don't have a lot to say about it, but I read it, and you can read it quite quickly. You can read it in one sitting. And, in fact, Jonah discovers basically one thing. And uh, if I can find it, there it is in the Minor past Jeremiah and and uh, keep going past Lamentations, Ezekiel. Come on, there it is. Daniel. Ah, Jonah. There you go. Past Amos and Obadiah and all the rest of them. See, in chapter 1, God comes to Jonah and says, He speaks in chapter 1. See, I miss this. Jonah hears God speak. And he says this. I want you to rise and I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city, which is now modern day Iraq and cry against it for their wickedness has become up before me and I want to save them. I want to redeem them. God had compassion over Nineveh. And Jonah hears that and he gets up, gets on a ship and goes the exact opposite direction. And then what happens in chapter 3, the very last verse of chapter 2, God appoints a big fish and swallows Jonah. And now inside the large fish for three days, notice what happens. He begins to cry out, my heart is in distress to the Lord. He answers me. God answers me. I cried out from the depth of Sheol. You've heard my voice. And he comes out of a three-day experience of darkness. Get it? And in chapter 3, verse 1, he hears again. Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. See, the problem is that God wasn't speaking. 
The problem is that Jonah wasn't listening. And what Jonah needed was the exact thing that he got. He got darkness. There's a reason why even we see over and over this pattern of darkness. Even our, our own kind of solar lunar uh, uh, patterns describe this idea of a new moon. You know what a new moon is? A new moon is every month for either zero to two days, and then on the third day, the, sun, the moon begins to be seen again, waxes and wanes. It changes every single night. It's a little different. But during the new moon, it rises and falls with the sun, so you can't see it. There's no moon. It's dark. And it's that three-day, it's a very interesting thing. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Paul was struck blind for three days. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. There's this, this, it was May 4th. It's going to be June 3rd again. It just keeps happening. What are you hearing? What is God saying? The people mattered to God. See, God speaks clearly. We're just not listening. Are you getting that? Are you seeing that? Do you understand what he's saying here? God must be saying something to us. Trust me. I know one thing that I heard clearly in this last season is you have presumed to be in control of your life and you're not. I'm in control. See, it's going to come out in a second because when I was telling you the story of um, my cardiac rehab and how important it is, I heard another little kind of tidbit of information. Something happened when I was in the ICU unit. Um, I'd come out of my angioplasty and, and uh, uh, they successfully restented me and I was recovering in ICU. And I don't remember a lot in ICU, but I'll tell you one thing. This one nurse came over to me toward the end of the first day. And she had been observing me, I think, because she came over and leaned down very close to me and said, Mr. Wendorf, I'm now leaving for the day but I want to leave you with this. And I, I, I don't remember a lot, but I remember what she said. She says, you need to learn how to care far more about far less. In fact, I just said that wrong. She actually said it the exact opposite. <laughs> right? My sister was there. She actually said, you need to care far less about far more. You need to start learning how to care far less about far more. It was, it was like God was speaking through her. And sometimes God does speak through somebody. Sometimes God speaks through his dream. I had this really odd dream a couple days ago that I met Steve McQueen. And I can't, it's like I was sitting right next to him and we had this conversation and I really liked Steve McQueen. I love Papillon and Great Escape. And, I, you know, in 1971, when On Any Given Sunday came out, my brother and I went to the movie theater, and we watched this movie about motors, dirt bike riding, and you know, Malcolm Smith, and Steve McQueen was in it. And, and uh, we had motorcycles, and, dirt, and I grew up in the culture of dirt bike riding in the 70s, and that was a big part of my life, and I loved that. And, and he's always kind of been like an idol, and so in the, this Dream. I leaned over and I said, I can't believe I'm sitting next to you. We're talking. And I wanted to say, you're kind of my idol, but I really only have not one idol, which is Jesus. And I didn't want to tell him that. And thinking, what's wrong, what's wrong with telling him that? 
And yet I really idolize you in so many ways, but not in that weird way I was trying to say. And it just went on for a while. It was very awkward. And um, I don't know where it went, but uh, I thought about this. I thought, wow, I mean, just his love for adventure has really attracted me and, and his movies and just his, his persona and all of that. And, and then I was at, at uh, Mother's Day with uh, Denise and we were with her family and and it was Denise's mom's Mother's Day, Saturday, and we had brunch. And, and Ed, my stepfather-in-law, had um, his, uh, some DVDs sitting out by his um, TV. And for some reason, I looked at him. And I just wondered, you know, okay, well, it's, it's any interesting new movies. Well, nobody buys DVDs anymore anyway, so they were all 20 years old. But there was one in particular, and it was the story of Steve McQueen. It was a documentary on Steve McQueen, and there it is. And I pulled it out, and Greg and Laurie had produced it. And it was, all, it was the whole story. I said, Ed, have you seen this? He says, yeah, it's really good. Um, at the end of his life, Billy Graham gave his own Bible to Steve McQueen. And I went, really? So I went back and started researching it. And I haven't seen the, the documentary yet, but the story really is that, that Steve later in his life, before he died, he's 50, he died actually of a heart attack in Mexico. He was suffering from cancer that was incurable. And he had gone to... Um, to Mexico for some treatment, but before he left, he couldn't find his Bible, and Billy Graham had visited him and uh, said, well, here, have my Bible, inscribed it, and handed him uh, his own Bible. And Steve took that to um, uh, Mexico and, and died of a heart attack with the Bible open to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And... Uh, and I, I, I just love that story. And now I'm thinking about it and the parallels of my life and his life, except for the fame and all that and the <laughs> movies and everything else. But the interest, and I didn't have a motorcycle. He actually lived in a hangar with his motorcycle collection, which is my dream, right? <laughs> if you really want to know where this is going, I sometimes fantasize about having a motorcycle collection so big, kind of like, you know, uh, uh, who else has the great motorcycle collection that's so good? The talk, late night talk show host. Yeah, Leno. Jay has an amazing collection of motorcycles. And I've met Jay, which is really weird. This is getting strange. And then I have a, the only Bible, the only, the only Bible, the only motorcycle that I have is a Triumph Scrambler, a 2008. And I bought the 2008. And it's army green. That army green comes from the movie The Great Escape that Steve McQueen was in when he rode an army green Triumph, a 650cc trophy, not a BMW. He wouldn't ride a German. He would only ride an English bike. And so in 1962, when that film was shot, he said, I'll only ride a Triumph. They put him on a Triumph, made it look like a BMW because they were in Germany. And he's riding away. And he actually rode those scenes because he's such a great writer. I don't know where this is going, but there's a parallel. And God sometimes speaks about adventure and faith. And God's in control. And that, that he was in perfect peace at the end of his life. And I always, I, I mean, I sometimes I thought, what a shame that he lived such a young life. That he lived such a short life and yet God knows what he's doing. He wants to get our attention. He wants to speak. Dallas Willard has written a fantastic book called Hearing God. And he says oftentimes, yeah, he can speak in all different ways, but often it's the inner voice. It's the inner voice, your own voice, that God wants to use to speak to you. 
clarity and advanced spiritual condition of those who can hear and receive it. In other words, when we focus on consecrating ourselves before the Lord, God begins to speak in very clear words what he wants and what he desires us to know. And they will match scripture. Often scripture will speak. It will be his way to speak to us. And during the times of silence, it's a time of waiting. It doesn't mean that God isn't speaking. He's just preparing us. In fact, Ron Boyd McMillan, a dear friend of mine, who wrote a little book called The, the Heart is a Noisy Place. And I love his, his, his little book because it's, it's, a, it's a read about how the, the heart is just, all these voices are coming in and you're hearing voices meet my need and my need and I have this and what's wrong with this? And, and you hear these competing voices that come into your life. And Ron says in this book that these aren't the voices that you're supposed to kick out and hate. They're the voices you are to listen to and as you listen to them, you hear what it is that your needs really are. And then you hear a greater voice, the voice of God, that speaks over the other voices and says, I want to meet those needs in a greater way. I am the greater way of meeting your needs if you listen to me. And the voice then begins to speak. And so I've been listening. 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. We have it if we're willing to listen. And so Dallas Willard in his book on, on hearing God speaks about this practice, this Benedictine practice that is called Lectio Divina. You might have heard of it. It's, it's a practice of reading, slowing down your reading of scripture, meditating, then reflecting, then praying, and then listening. So God wants to speak if we're willing to slow down and just begin to read slowly and begin to, to kind of quiet the other voices by hearing God say, I want to meet those needs. I want to take care of you. I know what you need. I'm right with you. I'm here. And then I wrote down something interesting. Take a risk. Speak it out and write it down. And so I practice this. I, I just think... We have to learn to practice. The, we, we've, got to, we've got to step out in faith and practice speaking out. Speak out your voice. God, I think what you're saying to me is, and by faith, speak out. I believe God wants to speak to us if we're willing to listen and to step out in faith. And I did it this morning, and I practiced it. And I heard something come out of my own mouth that is consistent with Scripture. Others would concur with and I know is something that God's working in my heart about. And I spoke it out. And I feel like that's how God wants to speak to us. And he's just going to continue to provide opportunity. So the question this morning as we close we're going to hear a beautiful, beautiful song from Olivia. And I want to invite Olivia and the team to come up and Jasmine and, and just a wonderful worship this morning. And, and uh, just a deep, rich song. And the first time I heard this song, I was going through um, my, um, my deep darkness with my um, diverticulitis, which led to um, colon surgery. 
And I was waiting for surgery when I heard this song. And I was at the beach. And I was struggling. And uh, Olivia sang this song. I didn't know that she had written it. But it aligned with some scripture that I had been reading. Again, all the coincidences, right? All the circumstances aligned. And I just stood in the back. I sat in the back. And I was weeping. And I went up to Olivia afterwards. And I, I couldn't stop crying. I just wanted to tell I didn't want to scare her. But there I am. I said, what the heck? I'm already, you know, crying. So I went up and told her how much I really love this song. And uh, I could barely get it out. And uh, you just, and, and I didn't know what else I said, but you looked at me and said, do you want to talk about it? <laughs> it was just so beautiful that you used the song and how you wrote it and how it came out of your life to even minister to me. Thank you. So thank you. So let's listen. It's a beautiful song. And then you'll be invited to take communion after this. So just sit quietly and listen and, and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. 